that's where we find ourselves in 2 Kings 23. Okay, quick review. So now, it's roughly 620 B.C., about 100 years after the fall of the northern kingdom, and Josiah, the boy king, is now about 26 years old. In the midst of significant political, moral, spiritual reform initiatives, and he is just publicly committed to restoring Judah's relationship with God. Right? Now, so what's he do? Let's read. 2 Kings 23, verse 21. The king gave this order to all the people. Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. Not since the days of the judges who led Israel, nor throughout the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, had any such Passover been observed but in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover celebration, or this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and spiritists, the household gods, the idols, and all the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. This he did to fulfill the requirements of the law written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had discovered in the temple of the Lord. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did, with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to provoke him to anger. So the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my presence as I removed Israel, and I will reject Jerusalem, the city I chose, and this temple about which I said, there shall my name be. As for the other events of Josiah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? While Josiah was king, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the Euphrates River to help the king of Assyria. King Josiah marched out to meet him in battle, but Necho fa faced him and killed him at Megiddo. Josiah's servants brought his body in a chariot from Megiddo to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoaz, son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in place of his father. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that as we read your word, that you would bless us as we study it. Lord, open our eyes to be able to see what you want us to see. Help us, Lord, to filter all that is going on in our life and, and, and in the life of the broader culture and nation around us through the lens of your word that we might be able to see clearly where now we only see foggy. We pray, Lord, that we might be able to, to grow in our understanding of who you are, in our hope and anticipation of what you will do. For we come in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, so quick summary of what, of what we just read. Josiah is now, he's taken reforms, his reforms to the next level. Right? However, as he does that, as sincerely and as appropriately as they're carried out, as the reforms might have been, the, the efforts aren't enough to address the real fundamental problem. Right? So what God does is he reiterates the prophecy that Judah in the south will face a similar fate as Israel in the north, and it will face destruction. And ultimately, Josiah, for all the appropriate superlatives about how great a king he was, ultimately he gets caught up in a political situation that leaves him dead, and buried in a tomb. That's the summary. Tremendous hope based on the prospect for real change that seems to go nowhere and end up in a tomb. Now, on many levels, that doesn't sound like the appropriate message for a morning like this, does it? 
I think about it on many levels. Is that what you felt you needed to hear as you came into the church this morning, right? Think about it this way. We're about 45 days into the, the new year. How's the resolutions going? Right, that thing that, that, that just, it wasn't that long ago, just six weeks ago, you're saying, oh, I'm going to make a difference. It's going to be different. Reform is going to happen. Right, maybe you saw a little bit of success, a little bit of hope. Right, but is the message to you this morning from this text, yeah, I'm glad you're trying, but you're headed for the destruction and the death of your good intentions. Is that the message? Or more, more, perhaps more broadly, 17 people died in another mass shooting this week. And you might, you might hope at some level that this would finally incite some kind of change in our society, whatever, that might, be, whatever might be needed, some kind of change that would actually, actually make a, a difference to never prevent something, like, uh, to prevent something like that from ever happening again. And is the message here? Yeah, good luck with that. I mean, it might happen for a little while, but you're never really ultimately going to change anything. Is that the message that you really came needing to hear this morning? No, of course it's not. And it's also not the message that we hear from this text. It's not the message we'll hear. Not because we need to alter or sort of twist this text in any way, but because we're going to see that this text actually leads us to real hope if we understand it in the broader context of what God is, is doing. But in order to do that, in order to see that, we have to follow the outline of what's, of what's here. And, and essentially, I'd like to do it like this. One sentence that sort of breaks down into, into three segments. Are you ready? Here's the message of this text that doesn't sound initially very hopeful, but ultimately is. Here's the message. In 2 Kings chapter 23, we see sincere reform that isn't enough and ends up in a tomb. Right? Sincere reform that isn't enough and ends up in a tomb. Now, inspiring, right? You want to go right out and tweet that, put it on a bumper sticker, I know. But, but hear me out. The message is about sincere reform that isn't enough and ends in a tomb. And that's where we actually find hope. Let's walk through it. First, it's about sincere reform. Look back at verses 21 to 25. Josiah is the king, and he is in a place where he has the authority to take very real, very practical steps to further his commitment to make Judah a nation that worships God. He has that authority. God's put him in that position, and he uses it. And he declares the celebration of the, of the Passover and with an intention of not just doing it, but doing it right. Now remember, the Passover was the celebration of how God had rescued the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, about how he had, had brought, them, brought them to safety from a position of slavery. It was celebrated with a, with a meal accompanied by sacrifices that was supposed to be celebrated annually to remind the people of the faithfulness of God and the rescue that he gives to his people. And, and when Josiah does the Passover, he, he makes it a big deal. And if you want to read later, 2 Chronicles 35 actually expands on, on this. It spends 19 verses describing what the Passover was like that Josiah celebrated here. Right? And it says in verse 22, it gives us a hint. It says in verse 22, not since the days of the judges who led Israel nor throughout the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah had any such Passover been observed. Now, it's not saying that the Passover had never been celebrated in any way. In fact, we know for a fact that Hezekiah in, in, had celebrated the, the Passover. But what he's saying is it had never been done like this. It had never been done with this level of faithfulness to the, to the covenant. It had never been done with this level of faithfulness to the intentions that God had, had given to the, to the, to the Passover. 
Right? So, so we see Josiah rightfully exercising his authority to enact sincere reform. And he takes it a level further. He, he goes in, it says in verse 24, he, he gets rid of the mediums and the spiritists, the household gods, the idols, and all the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. He outlaws all those things, and he, and he takes steps to remove from Judah anything that would lead people astray. This is sincere reform. And when I, when I say sincere, I don't just mean that, well, I mean, it was well-meaning, but it wasn't really substantive. As in, well, I mean, the reforms were, were, weren't really that great. I mean, he meant well. That's not what I mean. Right? When I say sincere reform, I mean that the reforms were both well-intentioned and impactful. They were meaningful. These were the right things to do. These were the appropriate responses for someone like Josiah in the position that he had. These were the appropriate responses to the situation where he was. These weren't just nice tries. These were meaningful, appropriate reforms that should have been done. And we have to say that because at times, on one extreme, you have people who will over-spiritualize the need for reform in a particular area, right? particularly when we have a, a history of of making sort of major reform efforts in, in, in particular areas of culture or in, in society. And then when we see a step back, we get discouraged. And, and, and some people are prone to sort of over-spiritualize that to a point where it just leads them to paralysis and inaction. And they, they say things like, what this country just needs is Jesus. We're never really going to see real change until Jesus comes back. Right? And by that, what they're saying, of course, at one level is very true. Right? But, but what, the, what they mean is, is instead of actually going out and doing something about it, instead of actually going out and telling someone about Jesus, <laughs> instead of actually going out and obeying what Jesus commanded us to do, to go into the world, to serve and to love those who are hurting and those who are helpless, and to, and to fight, to see what the kingdom of God looks like here on earth, instead of doing all those things, they just would prefer to, to hide behind the precision of their, their, their theology to post statements on Facebook and then just sort of leave it there. All right, so we do it with big kind of things like that. We also do it sometimes, this tendency to sort of, you know, just over-spiritualize when it comes to our personal sin. All right, we say, I think, I think I'm going to struggle with this, whatever it is, this sinful tendency, this, this lust, this problem of anger, this whatever it is. I think I'm just going to struggle with this until the day I die and Jesus, and Jesus makes me perfect. Now, of course, that's true. It may be true. You may, this may be a struggle for you the, the, the rest of your life. But to the extent that you take that to an extreme and use that as an excuse to do nothing, to take no step in following Jesus to bring about now the actualization of what he promises to fulfill ultimately in, in completion, then you're not really understand. See, for Josiah, these reforms were the right thing to do, even if we do go on to say it wasn't enough. It ultimately wasn't something that, that lasted or stuck. It was still, in the context where he was, the right thing for him to do. These are sincere reforms. That's point number one. But we can, at the other time, at the, on the other hand, go and rightly say that these reforms were obviously not enough. This is significant, too, because even though Josiah's righteousness exceeded, it says, any other king before or after, right, it was not enough. The judgment of God was still coming against Judah. Look at verse 26 again. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to provoke him to anger. Now, here's where the question might come. Because you say, okay, Manasseh, we're not in his age. He's done. Right? We're not in the time of Manasseh anymore. We're in the time of Josiah. 
And, and now things are different, right? There's been a change, right? Sincere reforms. You just talked about that, right? Isn't, aren't things different? And that's when you begin to wonder, oh, wait a minute, how deep did these reforms really go? I mean, outwardly, the people had sort of repented in a corporate kind of a fashion, and society seemed different. Josiah had cleaned up the streets. That was his job. He was the sovereign. He was the king. Clean up the streets. And they were cleaned up. But inwardly, obviously, the sin in the hearts of the people ran deep. And all it would take to expose it, quite honestly, was the death of Josiah. <laughs> go, on, go on to read the rest of chapter 23 and, and into chapter 24. Come back next week. And we'll see what happens. And external righteousness had developed in Judah under Josiah, and it was, that was not a bad thing, but it was a righteousness that really was only held in place by the rule of a, of a righteous king. You remember, anybody hear the Latin phrase, the Pax Romana? It, it means Pax is peace in Latin, so it means the, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. And what it referred to is the fact that, that under the, the rule of the Roman Empire, you had all these diverse peoples, all these, all these different religious beliefs, all these different ethnic customs, all sort of held in tension in peace for a time under the rule of the Roman Empire. But really only because the Roman Empire's military power enforced that peace. And of course, as soon as the military power of the Roman Empire began to wane, the same ethnic and regional and religious differences resurfaced because why? They had never really disappeared in the first place. Now, in a sense, this is kind of like a pox Josiah, if you will, a righteousness held only in place by the authority of, of King Josiah. So the Passover was celebrated, and you could no longer buy household goods in the, in the marketplace, and that's, that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing, but all of the same idolatries will just resurface once Josiah is gone because they never really had disappeared in the first place. Now again, let me be clear, doesn't mean that Josiah shouldn't have done what he did, doesn't mean that he shouldn't have enacted the reforms, but it does mean that as sincere as they were, the reform was not enough. External reform is not enough because there's a danger on the other extreme too. The other, the other, the other extreme of inaction is sort of this, this sense of, 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 of activism that, that, that places an overemphasis, over an overconfidence in what us in our power as human beings are able to do to reform either ourselves or our broader culture. Right? Remember, right, good leaders are objectively good, and the reforms and the policies that they enact are, are good, and we should, we should seek them. But neither does our ultimate salvation as a nation come on Air Force One. No, no law enacted by any Congress held by whatever party or, or whoever sitting on the Supreme Court will ever ultimately be able to do anything to change a single human heart. And the same is true on a personal level. Trying harder to do, to do it better the next time Getting the self-help book off the shelf and using just sort of willpower is never going to defeat the power of gripping sin in your life. And so the message then on this side is clear. If Jesus, the only hope for real, lasting, ultimate heart change, if Jesus is not central to how Christians approach social and personal problems, then however well-intentioned, however surface-level reforms might go, they will ultimately fail. See, sincere reform isn't enough. But let me just pause and be practical for, for, for just a second because you might be asking, all right, so what do I do then? 
Right? I, want to avoid, I want to avoid the extremes, but I still want to be an instrument of, of reform in the name of Jesus. I want to do it in the name of Jesus, but I want to be an instrument of, of reform. I want to do something meaningful. What do I do? The authors Warren Cole Smith and John Stone Street, they borrow a line from the old Mel Gibson movie, The, the Patriot. And it's about how Mel, how, how Mel Gibson's character teaches his son how to shoot a musket. This is colonial South Carolina. And the way, what he says to his son is like, this is how you shoot. Aim small, miss small. Aim small, miss small. Now, Smith and Stone Street say, if you're looking to make a difference in the name of Jesus, you need to aim small, miss small. Right? In other words, if you aim at a big area, right, you're going to hit nothing because you're not really aiming at anything. But if instead you pick a small, specific spot to focus your efforts, then even if you miss, even if you miss the spot, the exact small spot that you're aiming at, you won't miss my much, and you'll still hit the target. So practical, practical advice is, is this. Without overestimating yourself or your ultimate ability to be able to do anything to change the, the heart or the, the heart of a person or the heart of a culture, right? pick your spot. You want to be a part of alleviating the effects of sin in the broader culture? Then there might be something big that God is calling you to do, something of a William Wilberforce kind of a, a level, a parliamentarian helping to outlaw the slave trade throughout the British Empire. It might be something grand like that. But if you want to do something tomorrow, start by aiming small. Two examples, right? First, right, look for the lonely and the hurting and love them. And particularly in the wake of, 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 of something that happened, of, of what happened this past week in Florida. Right? What can you do? Your, your heart just cries out, I, I want to do something. Will you look for the hurting and the lonely and the broken and love them? I was reading the other, the other day um, about a teacher who ever since the, the Columbine High School shooting in Colorado in 1999 has a strategy for making a difference in her little tiny sphere. And this is what she does. She asks her kids each week by secret ballot to nominate someone in the class who, by virtue of something they've done or who they are, deserves special praise and special recognition. And she takes secret ballot, she takes it home, and then the next week she'll recognize that, that person. But her primary goal in doing this on a weekly basis is not to identify those who are viewed positively by the class. It's to identify those who aren't the ones who never get nominated, the ones who aren't in the in crowd, to ferret out the lonely ones, the different ones, and then she focuses her love and her attention on them. Now, on a more personal level, perhaps, you've been struggling with something large in your, in your own life, something that needs reform, right? What do I do? Start by aiming small. I once read how a, a Navy SEAL got through the rigorous training that SEALs endure in Coronado, Southern California when they go through their, their basic SEAL training. He said if he had thought about the entirety of it from the very beginning, he would have never, could have never possibly made it through. And instead, what he did was he just decided that he was going to make it to the next meal. He said to himself, I can make it to lunch. And then when he got to lunch, he said, I can make it to dinner. And then when he made it to dinner, he said, I can make it to breakfast. Now, in the same way, in our own lives, as we struggle with what might seem to be massive areas of sin and struggle, will you trust God enough to obey until lunch? And then, will you, and then will you trust Him enough to obey until dinner? Little exercises of faith 
will allow you to experience little examples of the grace of God. It's still His work in you, but as you see those little examples of how He upholds you in His grace, then they will begin to accumulate and your strength will be able to grow. Now, on, on, on another somewhat practical thing that I think we should talk about here, did you wonder about God's decision to, to, to continue to bring judgment and destruction upon Judah and Jerusalem? Because right? it's quite obvious that God's still angry here. Right? It, and, and did you wonder, what is that? I'm quite on, we're seeing clearly the perfect, holy anger of God against the sin of Judah, and we can theologically understand that, oh, no, of course, the people sin, and God is right to be angry at that sin. But I want us to see that this, while this is clearly God's justice on display, why God might be continuing to bring this about, even in the face of what seem to be steps in the right direction. Right? Consider for a second that while this is great justice, what God is going to do here is also great mercy. Harvest USA is a nationwide ministry to those who have been struggling, who are struggling with sexual brokenness. And if you've been around here for, for any length of time, you've heard us talk about them before. They're, they're headquartered in Philadelphia. We've been longtime supporters of their ministry, longtime beneficiaries of their, of their ministry and their wisdom. Well, in their men's support groups, so small groups of men, learning how the Bible can free them from slavery to sexual addiction. Most of the men in these groups are there because of some type of justice. <laughs> now, not usually in a formal legal kind of sense, but justice in the sense that they've been caught, right? Because what, what they had had effectively hidden for, for years under maybe some surface-level kind of reforms are now exposed, right? Maybe one of their surface-level reforms kind of failed, Right? And they were caught in their addiction by, by an employer, by a spouse, by a, by a parent. And that's the reason why they're now sitting in one of these groups. And the saying that they have in these, in these men's groups, that they, they tell these guys is, it is God's mercy that you were caught. Now, they rightly observe that getting caught <laughs> does not feel to these men at that moment very often like mercy. It feels like hell itself. Because in many instances, their entire worlds, because of, of what they have done, have fallen down completely around them. But what they say is that getting caught is the best thing to happen to these men because now, now and only now, they can clearly see themselves and clearly see their behavior and the damage that it's done and are clearly now and only now prepared to effectively deal with it. Only when they know themselves rightly is there any hope of redemption and lasting change. And so the justice may be severe, but it is severe mercy. Now, do you see where the nation of Judah was stuck? Where it, where it was enslaved to its empty promises of doing better next time. We'll get a better king eventually. We'll do this again. We'll do it right. Just this cycle of surface-level reforms that never lasted. Now, the justice is severe. God says he's going to remove Judah from his presence. He's going to surrender the city walls of Jerusalem and the very temple itself to, to destruction. But he's going to do it to expose the depth of the problem that Judah really faces. To show them that there is no human king, even one as great as Josiah, who is ultimately really going to be able to deal with the true heart problem that they have. See, their problem is not merely that it's been, it's been too many years since we had a good Passover around here. We just need a good Passover. 
No. The problem is that Judah doesn't really understand the depth of their enslavement. And when you don't understand how enslaved you are, then you cannot appreciate the magnitude of the rescue to which the Passover points. God is not abandoning his covenant, his promise to David, his commitment to rescue. But the people of Judah don't adequately understand the depth of their need for the covenant, for the promise, their need for rescue. And so the most merciful thing that God can do is to expose it and bring it to light. Because because when that happens, you have the opportunity for real hope. Sincere reform, point number one, isn't enough, point number two, and ends in a tomb. That's what happens to Josiah, verses 29 to 29 and 30. For all of his greatness, for all the reforms, he ends up where? Dead. In a tomb. Now, it's very interesting Near Eastern political history, how it all goes down, and I won't go into all the details, but, but between these two verses and what we can read in Second Chronicles 35, Josiah feels it's important to intervene in an alliance that's going to be happening between the king of Egypt and the Assyrian Empire, and the pharaoh of king of Egypt is bringing his army up north to Damascus, and Josiah, for whatever his reasoning might be, decides that he doesn't want to let that happen, and so he decides to go into battle to stop pharaoh. Pharaoh actually kind of sends a messenger and says, my problem isn't really with you. (laughs) Just let us go through. Let us pass. But for whatever reason, Josiah decides to go into battle. And when he does, he's mortally wounded. His body is brought back to Jerusalem where he's buried in his own tomb. And his son becomes king. And we already happened about what what talked about what happens after that. Everything begins to go downhill. So that's it. That's it. All the hope ends in a tomb. Even the greatest of kings, the one about whom it was said, neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did. Even a king like that ends up dead. They all die. Even Jesus. (laughs) Even Jesus. They had this experience, at least from the perspective of those around him, or a great hope. Things are finally going to change. And then he ends up dead. It hasn't been too long since Christmas. Remember, remember the hope. Remember what the angels said to the shepherds. I bring you good news of great joy. For today is born to you in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And speaking of baptisms, remember Jesus' baptism. Remember the hope. God the Father speaking down on his son saying, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Inaugurating his ministry and, and, the, and the hope. Things are going to be different. Real reform. Finally. And speaking of loving God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, right? that's what Jesus said was the first and the greatest commandment. And there was no one who lived it out like Jesus did. And yet, so those surpassing Josiah in all of these areas, Jesus ends up dead too. From the perspectives of his disciples, initially, it looks exactly the same. Publicly executed on a cross, seemingly caught up in political maneuvering and circumstances of his day that were beyond his control, now, he wasn't pierced with an Egyptian arrow. Jesus was pierced with a Roman spear. But the, but the end was the same. Ends up buried in a tomb. And even more than that, when it comes to Jesus, if we think about it, and this is where that we see the significance. Jesus doesn't just end up in a tomb. He doesn't just end up dead. He ends up cursed and dead. This is what I mean. Look back at verse 27. And the judgment that God declares 
It says, the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my presence as I removed Israel, and I will reject Jerusalem, the city I chose, and this temple about which I said, there shall my name be. What's going to happen? Judah is going to be removed from God's presence. The chosen city and the temple of God are going to be rejected. But do you see? And here's where we see the hope. Do you see the difference with Jesus? This rejection... This curse, this is exactly what happens to Jesus. Judah's going to be removed from God's presence, but that's exactly what Jesus endures for us on our behalf on the cross. That's the reason why he cries out to his Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the experience of the absence of the presence of the Father, the the experience of the wrath and and the justice of God that he endures for us. Jerusalem. Is the, is the rejected chosen city. It's the, it's the chosen one. And John tells us, though, rightly identifies Jesus. Jesus is the chosen one. And that's what John says as he begins writing his gospel. He's there to testify to the fact that Jesus is God's chosen one, and the chosen one is rejected. The temple. The temple where, where God's name resides. Jesus himself bears the name of God, and he identified himself as the temple. Do you see? The hope comes because Jesus experiences the consequences of the same curse that was pronounced on, Jesus, on, on Judah. And he didn't deserve it. Talk about, your, talk about the perfect intersection of justice and, and mercy. Talk about your perfect picture of severe mercy in one place. God needs to expose the deep sin of Judah so that driven to repentance, God can deal with that sin, and he would, through an ultimate Passover sacrifice. And in the same way, Jesus needs to expose your sin, our sin, so that driven by the weight of it, we can experience, by faith and repentance, real, lasting change. Because the quest for real reform does really end in a tomb. It really does. But as we enter into the traditional Lenten season this this week, And as we approach Easter, the message of Easter, of course, is that the tomb of Jesus, unlike the tomb of Josiah, is an empty one. See, see, real reform, sincere reform, it it must end in a tomb. Any of our efforts, it must end in a tomb, one way or the other. The question is, which one? Either in the futility of a tomb where good intentions go to die, or in the real gospel resurrection hope of the empty tomb. Now, what will it take? What will it take for you, for us, to see that need for Jesus, to recognize our need for the hope of the empty tomb? Have you ever encountered someone who is so caught in the depth of their sin or is walking down a path that is obvious to everyone but them that is destroying them? Such that, as painful as it might be, you begin to to understand that only something severe is going to be enough to open their eyes to the depth of their need for Jesus. Maybe that's you. Are you willing to pray for others or accept for yourself severe mercy if that's the only way for Jesus to save? Now, I'm not talking about praying down specific instances of judgment on on people. Leave that to God. It's above our pay grade. Leave the wisdom of how to, how to execute those, those prayers to, to him. 
But are you willing to say, God, I love this person, or I want this for myself so badly. Do whatever it takes to open my eyes to my real needs so that real change can happen. I once heard of a godly Christian grandmother who was concerned about the appropriateness of a co-ed living arrangement for her college-age grandson. And she prayed, this grandmother prayed, that God would make it clear to him that he was on the wrong path and that that this was leading him away from Christ. And shortly thereafter, there was a fire in the apartment that made it uninhabitable. Now, obviously, she didn't want her grandson hurt, and she didn't ask for the specifics. She didn't know how God was going to answer this prayer. But, But she asked for God to intervene and to do whatever it took. And she ended up, this godly grandmother, be careful, godly grandmothers, right? She ended up praying down fire on her grandson. But that's what it took. And it's stuck. Are you willing to pray those prayers? God, do whatever is necessary to save that person. God, do whatever is necessary. Are you willing to, to sincerely thank God for using severity in your life? I'm not saying that in every instance where you experience suffering, that it's God's trying to point out some specific area of sin in your life. Oftentimes, and in many ways, the suffering we experience is the general consequence of us living in a broken world. But if it's true, are you willing to accept it? God pointing those things out to you through severity, if that's what it will take to draw you closer to Him, to have a joy and a trust and a faith and a relationship with Him that you would have no other way and would have resisted otherwise. I'm not saying it's easy. It's not. It's severe. But in the hands of God and used on behalf of His children, it's severe mercy. True, lasting, ultimate reform ends in a tomb. Thankfully, it's empty. Let's pray. Father, we look at the world around us and we look at our own hearts and there are times when it is very easy to become discouraged and overwhelmed. It's hard not to feel afraid and angry when schools become the venue for mass murder. It's hard not to feel anxious when we struggle to do the things that we desire at some level to do and yet are not able to do them. And Lord, we pray that as your weary children longing for the day when your glory will come to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, that you will strengthen us until that day that you will in the midst of this world where reform will never be ultimate, but where you've called us to act, that you would make us agents of peace and agents of hope, that you would replace our worry and our fear with faith and trust, that you would give us patience and courage, knowing that when we labor in your name, we never labor in vain. Help us, Lord, to not pull back, to not retreat, and to know with confidence that the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ will prevail. For we come praying in his name. Amen.